You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. Over the past decade, carbon offsetting has become increasingly popular, but it has also become increasingly controversial. While some argue that carbon offset programs allow people to feel absolved of their carbon-consuming sins without genuinely changing behaviors, which may very well be true in some instances, we here at the Eyes on Conservation podcast, as part of the larger Wildlands crew, all work to be active participants in a sustainable future. As all of us at Wildlands prepare to gather from all across the country to discuss the future direction of the organization, we will be participating in a carbon offset program to make this a more sustainable venture. But as we began researching the options, it was difficult to figure out which programs were genuinely effective. That is, until we discovered Eco2. Eco2 works in Kenya and offers carbon offsets that pay for several programs, including locally produced efficient stoves that reduce wood consumption and help to preserve the unique vegetation and biodiversity of the Kakamega Forest. These stoves have a cleaner burning process, decreasing indoor air pollution. Moreover, savings in burning unsustainably harvested fuel wood cuts down CO2 emissions. Matt Podolsky spoke with Antone Espira, a founder and principal of Eco2 and Solibrium that has been overseeing this inspiring project that Wildlands is excited to contribute to. My name is Anton, um, Anton Espira. I'm from Kenya. I'm actually joining this podcast from a small village in Kakamaga in Kenya, in Western Kenya. Um, I, Mark and I and Scott, we run Eco2 Librium. We are a natural resource conservation company. We do forest conservation and poverty alleviation and all kinds of stuff related to natural resources. Fantastic. So, I mean, maybe you can tell me a little bit about how this this company uh, got started. I mean, what's what what what's, was sort of the um, the inspiration behind it? Well, it's it's um, it's an interesting story. Both Mark and I are biologists, and uh, we have a contact in common, a professor at Columbia. Her name is Marina Codes. And we both spoke to her about the same idea. And then she told us, we spoke to her at separate times, and she told me I should go meet Mark, and she told Mark, you should meet Anton. <laughs> so Mark was living in Colorado then, and I was in California. I drove up to Colorado, very nice drive. You know, I'd never met Mark before. Drove up to his house. We had dinner, and we, you know, hit it off immediately. And, uh, yeah, you know, ideas just went on from there. We, we were all thinking about forest conservation. But we realized you cannot conserve a forest without um, addressing poverty, without addressing the needs of the people who live around the forest and who depend on the forest. So we morphed from focusing on forest conservation to focusing on job creation, um, on natural resource conservation, um, um, energy poverty, fuel, solar power, you know, all these kind of things that relate to life in the village. So that's that's sort of how it started, just, you know, um, coincidental meeting and yeah, everything just went on from there. I came across your organization when I was doing a search, you know, looking for programs related to carbon offset. Um, and, and so I, I guess I'm sort of wondering, like, if you can explain how this forest conservation project that you and your organization is involved with 
you know, how it's connected to uh, carbon offset programs? So it, it's a challenge to find a revenue source for conservation activities. But the United Nations and a few other groups came up with uh, a cab- the carbon offset system where if you reduce trees that are being cut, you can compensate for the carbon that those trees will absorb. So basically, if you do anything that reduces the destruction of the forest, you can quantify it in terms of how much carbon is being saved from being released into the atmosphere and then how much carbon the trees are absorbing, and you can convert that into carbon credits. So you get a carbon offset project. So the the basis of the carbon offset project is reducing deforestation. So reducing the number of trees that are being cut. And as we know, trees absorb carbon dioxide. And also when you cut a tree down and you burn it, you release carbon dioxide. So you get a win-win in either situation. So forest conservation is very easy to connect to carbon offsets. Developing a market and developing a viable business out of it is another thing altogether. So that's the challenging bit. But in terms of, um, you know, of the science behind it, it's, it's pretty straightforward. I hope that answers your question. I don't know. Yeah, no, it, it, it does. Absolutely. It sounds like, you know, you, you came up with the idea for uh, this, this project, right, to reduce deforestation in the, and it, it's the, the, the Kakamega forest. Is, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Uh, it's a small rainforest in Western Kenya. It's the, you know, the only bit of rainforest in Kenya. So it's pretty unique. I'm actually lucky enough to have visited uh, the, the Kakamega about 10 years ago. I took a trip to Kenya and, and I was able to spend uh, two days um, in, in that area. I feel extremely lucky that I, I'm actually able to relate to the, the area that you're talking about. Hear more about the specifics behind the work that you're doing in this unique region um, and, and I also wonder, like, do you have a personal connection here? I mean, you, you grew up in Kenya. Um, uh, you know, is this close to the area where you grew up? Well, so I'll start with where I grew up. I actually grew up in Kakamega. <laughs> All right. As a kid, I used to, yeah, I used to go to the forest. And um, then I moved to, I, I went to the States and to Canada and to England to study, to do all my university. And when I came back, the forest was really, had really shrunk. So from my memories as a kid, I was like, oh my goodness, when I was growing up, I could you know, see the, the forest right outside our window. And right now, and you know, when I came back, it was, you know, seven, 10 kilometers away. So I started for looking for ways to conserve the forest. And that's how I came across Mark. And when we first started the project, we were thinking about how can we raise money for conservation? So we went through a bunch of options. You might have heard of the Red Plus Plus program, right? Where you get credits for reduced deforestation. It basically stands for reduced forest deforestation and degradation. So we were initially looking at the Red Plus, but it's really complicated to develop. As we were looking at different ways to actually conserve the forest, we um, ended up starting a small reforestation uh, project where we were planting 500 hectares of forest, and that took off the ground as well. But um, at the same time, we were looking at uh, what are the main drivers of deforestation, or um, in other words, what do people use the forest for? And the primary use that people make of the forest is for firewood. So we realized we have to address firewood need. So the next project we started was an energy-efficient stove project, and that has been really, really successful. It's called uh, Stoves for Life, and we have distributed stoves to over 50,000 households in the region around the forest. So our core project right now uh, for forest conservation is the energy-efficient stoves. They reduce the amount of firewood people use by more than half. 
So if a family would take out, you know, 100 kilograms a week from the forest, now they can take out 35 or 40 kilograms. So that reduces, you know, by half how many trees are cut and how much the forest is being degraded. At the same time, it produces jobs. I mean, we've created jobs for over 700 people, and there's income now flowing within the communities. As people get wealthier, they use less and less firewood. They turn to, you know, gas, they turn to other forms of energy. So that also drives deforestation down a step. Continuing on that spectrum, um, the other fuel that people use a lot of is charcoal. So our other project, so that's project number one was reforestation, just planting 500 hectares of forest. Project number two was the energy efficient stoves, uh, where we, we've distributed over 50,000 and we, we're still going. We are, we are aiming for over 100,000. So the third project is um, we developed a replacement for charcoal. So Charcoal in Africa is made by burning timber, burning wood without access to air. So they take a you know log, put it underground, set it on fire, come back several days later and you have a nice piece of charcoal. So people use the forest to make charcoal as well. So we've developed a alternative to charcoal from uh, sugarcane waste. So that's another project. So we've got this series of projects that are each tackling uh, one or two aspects of forest destruction. And the aim is to move people away from using the forest into using other resources like sugarcane waste, you know, and so on and so forth. So that's basically um, an overview of what we do. We also started a solar project providing solar power to homes in the village. That's to reduce kerosene use. Uh, so that's not directly related to the forest, but it's also related, related to decreasing poverty in the area and improving health. All of these factors um, come in to improve, you know, all kinds of stuff within the community around the forest. And as the communities get better, as they get a little bit wealthier, as they get better educated, the pressure on the forest decreases. I mean, you you will know in the States, um, in an affluent country like the United States, people use nature for recreation. They don't use it to provide natural resources to themselves. But in very poor countries, people get food and firewood and medicine from the forest and so on and so forth. Um, so before I go on any longer, and you know, I lose you. I, I hope that covers it. <laughs> oh yes, a- absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and I really appreciate that that overview. Because I mean, first of all, I, I wonder, you know, what kind of results you've seen, right? I mean, you've distributed many, many of these stoves, and and you know, been involved in all these different projects um, to reduce the amount of deforestation. I mean, are are you seeing the the uh, the results from that? Yes, we're definitely seeing the results. Um, so from the very sort of basic results where we're seeing less firewood coming out of the forest to more interesting results. So um, the family structure in uh, Kenya, in rural Kenya, is very much male-dominated. So a woman will spend most of her time in the house. She will collect firewood. She'll you know, collect water. She will cook and she will walk in the garden. Uh, by reducing how much firewood a family uses, we suddenly, uh, we free up, we, we reduce how many times a woman has to go to the forest. And then all of a sudden, women have free time. And they use this free time all kinds of interesting ways. They spend more time with their kids. Um, they, uh, they spend more time tending the garden. They develop small businesses on the side. So all these little anecdotal things, you know, are happening all around that are, you know, both direct and indirect effects. Uh, one of the other things is that most families will use their kids to collect firewood. That means kids will spend less time in school uh, because they have to go into the forest, spend several hours, you know, walk for five or 10 kilometers to get firewood and bring it home. 
suddenly they have to collect half as much or a quarter as much of the firewood. Or suddenly the kids are no longer needed to collect the firewood because the mother can collect enough firewood. So you see that kids are spending more time in school. So that's you know another great effect. So all these knock-on effects are, are really interesting, and, and we we love to see um, communities change. Also, so a lot of the firewood is collected by kids, mostly girls and women. So young girls, small girls, kids as young as you know five or ten years old. Um, firewood collection is illegal. Many of these kids will get arrested. They don't have money to pay a fine. So without sounding dramatic, it's not unheard of that girls or women will, um, you know, resort to um, sexual favors to the security guards to let them go from the forest. So we see a decrease in that as well, right? We, we see that, you know, the, the whole, all those little negative things that happen in a community that are a result of the poverty and are a result of the pressures people are under, we, we see them decreasing. One of the more interesting things we found is that, um, as women have more time in the family to start their own business, for example, they start to make a little more money. And suddenly the dynamic in the family changes. Before it used to be the husband comes home, he's the only source of income, so he's completely domineering. Suddenly a woman has a little spare money. She will buy her own food for herself and the children. She will start to be more independent. If she's got an abusive husband or if she's got a husband who is a drunkard, you know, she'll feel more confident about saying, you know, I can, I can do without this guy. So these are all, you know, really like interesting things that are happening. I mean, we started the project to reduce how much, how many trees are being cut. But most interesting for us is all the social things we see changing around in the communities. One of the other things is that um, Eco2 acts as a facilitator. We don't make the stoves and we don't sell the stoves. We actually involve over 10 women's groups around the forest who make the stoves, sell them, and make an income out of that. So these women's groups have grown, have grown from, you know, making five or 10 stoves a week to making, you know, a thousand stoves a month. So they've, they've grown into small micro entrepreneurs. They're, they're opening bank accounts, you know, they're building new houses, they're taking their kids to college. So just by pumping money into the system by coming into a community where people used to buy and sell, you know, 200 to, you know, 500 stoves a year. And suddenly we're doing 20,000 stoves a year. We're doing 10,000 stoves a year. The exponential growth in how much money is going into the community has all this knock on effects that, you know, change family life, they change schools, they change the whole community structure, they change the dynamic between men and women. So these are all the really interesting things that we're seeing. And these are the things that we're most proud of, right? As much as we love the forest, it's really nice to see the change in the community. It's really amazing to hear you explain all of these different benefits that come along, the social benefits and the economic benefits right. for the community that come along when you do this, this, you know, uh, this like very simple project, right? You know, uh, uh, building yeah. these stoves that are more efficient. It's, it's it's amazing, right? I mean, I I guess what I wonder is, you know, for you, like having grown up in this area, I mean, uh, it, it must be amazing for you to see uh, all of these benefits that this project provides for the community. I mean, what what's that like to watch this happen? Well, um, we're lucky we're not having a video podcast because I'm quite shy. Um, <laughs> so whenever I go out in the community now, everybody stops me and says, oh, 
uh, people call me Tony in Kenya. Oh, Tony, uh, you're the one with the stove project. And I'm always like, I'm always a little embarrassed because um, suddenly people are, you know, talking about what we're doing everywhere. I mean, you know, 50,000 and more households, that's, that's pretty big, you know. And uh, people are talking, you know, people stop you and they tell you, oh, you know, oh, you should come and see the new house I built. And I'm like, why should I see your new house? I mean, I'm, I'm not that rude. I'm thinking to myself, why should I see your new house? Because this is somebody I don't know. And they say, oh, you know, I built it off because, you know, I'm part of the stove project. And I don't know everybody. We have 700 people, right? So all all this, this is really, you know, um, it's heartwarming and it's, it's reaffirming that um, if... If you have, you know, a little belief in the system that as, as much as people are poor and they seem almost clueless, once you give them a chance to, you know, to get some dignity, to get some income, to to improve their lives, they actually jump on it. And you don't even have to tell them what to do. You know, we, we have a very hands off approach. People know what they're doing and they do a really good job. And, and to see that, to see, you know, the communities I grew up among, you know, to see them improve and make a change it's it's really um I, I wouldn't say proud it doesn't make me proud because i'm not you know i'm not the one making the changes but it, it's it's heartwarming it's um it's really encouraging and it, it gives me hope that um you know development and reduction of poverty can be achieved i mean perhaps you know all the large quantities of money going into aid you know is not the right way to do it perhaps you have to do it on a grassroots level because um, we we don't pump you know hundreds of millions of dollars like you say it does, right? But we we see the changes. The dollar for dollar changes are much more significant when you pump them right on the grassroots level. So it, it gives me hope that you know we can we can end all this you know poverty and I mean not overnight obviously, but it gives me hope that there is a way. And that's that's the main thing. That's the most beautiful feeling I have that. Yeah, that you know, it's not all hopeless. That you know, there is ways and means, and people will get out of it. That's sort of the most important thing, I think. It's really amazing to hear you talk about this, right? Because as you said, I mean, yeah, it's it's um, it 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 strikes on like one of these really big picture sort of global problems that we face, right? Where you know, uh, like, how do you uh, how do you bring people out of poverty? Right, without increasing the the footprint, right? right. Um, and this solves both of those problems, which is so amazing. Um, I mean, I, I I guess I wonder, like, are are you thinking about um, how this program might expand, or how you could take this concept and uh, uh, expand it to to other areas in Kenya or even outside of Kenya? Yeah, we, we're thinking about that all the time um, because um, so. Our stove project is dependent on carbon credits. It's dependent on carbon offsets. So expanding it is not that easy because um, carbon offset projects, the certification of carbon offset projects, it's, it's pretty complicated. But our other projects like our um, solar project and our you know, um, charcoal that's made from sugarcane waste, our charcoal briquettes, they're not dependent on carbon offsets. But we are using the same sustainable social supply chain that we used in the stove project. So we're using women micro-entrepreneurs as promoters and retailers. Um, we, we are sharing, basically, we're building it as a business and everybody along the way gets to share the profit. So 
unlike you know large corporations where the profit is hoarded and then shared with the shareholders our model is that everybody who is involved in the supply chain gets to share the profit so our solar for example is built on a supply chain within the communities spread out actually throughout Kenya not just in Kakamega so we are taking not necessarily the stove project per se but the model on which the stove project is based which is um multiple micro entrepreneurs who you give them a little support it could be a micro micro loan of you know $100 or $1000 to get started then they they pay it off as they sell products so well, we're using that model within all our other projects and the idea is basically to empower people in rural areas primarily women because if a woman makes you know $20 she'll spend it on her kids if a man makes $20 he'll go and have a good time in a bar so <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 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 the reality out here so by using mostly women uh, or by using um, small groups that are dominated by women we are spreading this model of little micro entrepreneurs all over the place and a socially sustainable supply chain that's that's sort of the main thing we're taking out of the stock project build a supply chain where as much as possible is done locally so that as much of the profit of the any revenue that comes in is shared along the supply chain when people make $2 a day as their you know average income if they start making $4 a day if they start to make $5 a day that is you know more than double of, of their normal income that that completely changes their life so you don't have to come in and give people $1000 you just have to build a supply chain where if you have five or six people along the way and you're making $10 of profit those five people get to take out $2 at each point and that changes everything and uh, that's i think the model that we're thinking about and that's the model we're trying to spread uh with with our with all our other projects so i wonder how these projects are changing the way that people in these communities interact with the forest itself well oh, that's an interesting question <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's an interesting question um so kenya is famous for its you know savannas and its wildlife um all the big megafauna you know elephants lions giraffes we have none of that in the forest so we don't get any tourists here so communities have never seen income coming from the forest they see the forest protected they see guards with guns you know walking around the forest and they're not allowed to enter it and they they don't make any money so it's hard for them to connect uh the forest to a revenue source um when we started our projects we we were telling people that these projects are about conservation and unfortunately that didn't work because for poor people conservation is a very esoteric concept i am hungry you're telling me that you know you're saving that tree because of the monkeys that eat the fruit but my kids need food if i cut that tree down i could feed my kids it it makes no sense to me for you to tell me to not cut that tree down so we stopped talking about conservation in our work we started talking we stopped, stopped talking about forest conservation we started talking about natural resource conservation and then we started talking about um in, increasing income you know take part in the project your income will, will rise as we became more successful we became a little braver and we started to talk about conservation again um so right now the community is uh getting more cognizant of the fact that 
the stove project, the uh, renewable fuel charcoal project are all connected to the forest and they're connected to conservation. So um, you talk to people in the community and they say, well, you've helped me out. Now I don't need to depend on the forest. I can get my fuel elsewhere. I can use your, you know, renewable biomass fuel. I can save firewood. I, I can grow enough trees. So now tell me a little bit more about forest conservation. Or tell me how can I help in getting more tourists to come. So people are starting to enter into the conversation with us, realizing that the forest can have value. It may not be direct. It could be indirect. So that's a, that's a really interesting thing we're seeing. Um, unfortunately, it's still not possible to directly generate income from the forest for the communities. I mean, it, it is possible, but not on such a large scale. I mean, that would be the, the next thing that we would like to work on. Like our reforestation project was based on communities tending seedlings, taking care of the trees as they grow, and any carbon revenue generated from the trees went to the communities 100%. So we didn't take any of that at all. So that was one way that people could see that if I save a tree, I could make some money. But the scope of that is, is, is fairly limited. But what's good for us now is that people are starting to enter the conversation. They're starting to talk about the forest as a resource that they want to save. Now that they no longer use it or that they no longer depend on it 100%, they're starting to see it for its cultural value and its historical value. And that's that's something that's changing across and that's you know really interesting to watch. And yeah, I, I don't know where that will go, but that's that's something we're seeing. Yeah, and that's it's it's a really fascinating uh, uh, story that you told, right? Because I mean, it's it's like yes, you you can't. It, it doesn't make sense to talk about conservation really at all until you solve the problem of poverty, right? But once you fix that, right? Once people, uh, uh, as you said, like no longer rely on you know using that firewood resource in this example, like um, then then they're very open to it, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wonder, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me to, to hear you say that, you know, uh, there's at the moment, you know, not much sort of economic gain that, that these communities can get out of the forest. Uh, I mean, is, is there any thought being put into, you know, trying to, to promote the Kakamega more as a, a tourist destination? And, and, and I mean, I, I say this, like part of the reason I bring this up is because like I actually did visit the Kakamega as a, as a tourist. Um, so, I mean, there's at least a little bit of, of interest, right? I mean, I may be a little bit of an unusual tourist, but um, I, right. I, I just wonder if that's something that, um, that uh, folks are thinking about. Well, there must be something special about you because we don't get enough guys like you coming, coming over here. <laughs> but um, so, um, in the same context, so the Kakamega Forest is protected by the same government bodies that protect the big savanna national parks. Um, when they have limited resources and they have to spend most of their resources protecting the forest, they don't spend enough time on promoting tourism. But now, for example, that um, we have reduced the pressure on the forest, the government agencies that protect the forest talk to us and they say, okay, you know, we've solved one problem. People are not cutting down as many trees. Can we think of something else? Can we do some promotional things? So we've been doing on the side, not really on a large scale, but we've been doing a lot of promotional activities for Kakamega Forest as a whole, especially in Nairobi, you know, where, you know, all, you know, all, all the money in Kenya is. And 
we are tackling, we are actually addressing mostly Kenyan tourists, the Kenyan middle class. Mm. Uh, we tell we tell people, okay, you know, you, you've you've seen elephants, you've seen giraffes, you can see them every weekend because you live in Kenya, but you've never seen a rainforest. So we, we're doing small promotional activities. We we have a team with us that's um, focused on social media and focused on uh, traveling to conferences and things like that and talking about Kakamega Forest, talking about, um, you know, what's interesting in Kakamega Forest. Uh, one of the things we're doing is we, we are trying to, um, well, you've been to the forest. When you get to the forest, all you see is trees, right? <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and if you don't know tree A from tree B, if you don't know different types of trees, it's just, you know, many trees. So we, we are trying to um, look into all the different cultural aspects of various forest trees. And uh, we've created a little brochure that explains culturally uh, how the trees were used, what was used for medicine, what was used um, for initiation ceremonies, you know, what people believed would be the home of the spirits. So once you start to give the forest cultural context like that, suddenly people get interested. They, they go, oh, you know, I went to the forest and I saw this tree that my grandfather used to tell me about. So, you know, doing things like that is, you know, baby steps towards increasing interest in the forest. But hopefully, you know, we're doing something. I mean, we're doing at least a little bit to get people to come to the forest. So, yeah, we, we haven't done a specific drive to promote the forest, but we're doing all we can on a small level. Fantastic. Um, you, you know, I, I want to kind of bring this full circle right now, you know, because, um, you know, we started off talking about, you know, the role that, that carbon offsets and carbon offset programs have played in, uh, you know, uh, generating a lot of the, the income that is, that, you know, is being put into this community um, and that helped initiate um, all these various projects that, that you're working on in uh, these communities around the Kakamega. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's really cool, right? Because it, it, it actually provides a, a very distinct way for folks like the folks that are listening to, to this podcast episode to contribute to these projects that you're doing. Right. So, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about like, you know, like how, how can people contribute, right? Like, you know, how, I mean, you talked about sort of how the carbon offsets work in the context of your project and how it's connected to the projects that you're working on in the communities around Kakamega. But like from the perspective of, you know, say someone like myself, if I am, you know, uh, maybe I'm, you know, well, not maybe I am about to jump on an airplane, right, <laughs> to go to uh, uh, the wedding of, of my cousin, right? Like, how could oh. I, if I wanted to, like, purchase a carbon offset um, that would help contribute to these projects that you have going on in the Kakamega, like, what would that process look like? So uh, I will start by not being selfish. I will say that uh, most airlines provide a carbon offset system. So it will probably, the money, if you spend money on a carbon offset when you buy a ticket, Probably the money will not come to us, but it will go to a project like ours somewhere else in the world. Uh, the project might be better, it might not be as good, but it doesn't matter. You know, it, it will go somewhere. But if, if you want to specifically contribute to our projects, 
Um, our carbon offsets are marketed through a Swiss organization called MyClimate. Uh, it's called Foundation MyClimate. Very easy to find. It's one of the biggest in Europe. So if you go to MyClimate, you will find our projects there, and you can actually select on their website what project you want to offset your flight or anything else. If you're building a house and you want a carbon neutral house, or if you drive a lot, for example, you're a salesman or a saleswoman, and you drive a lot, you, you can actually say, hey, you know, I want to offset my driving. So it doesn't cost you much. You'll find it costs you, you know, $5, $10, $15. So if you go to myclimate.org, you, you can find the Kakamega Forest Project. Um, you know, you can buy credits that specifically um, will, will be, that, will, that will be offset through our project. So that will be a direct way for income to come to us. Um, you can also get in touch with our guys in the States, with Mark, or just go to the Eco2 website, contact any of us. And if you don't want to offset directly through MyClimate, if you contact us, we can find a way for you to offset through the United States. You can actually do it directly through us because you can calculate. We can help you calculate your carbon footprint. And, um, you know, you can, we can tell you, okay, well, it, you know, your carbon footprint is, you know, X, XYZ tons and a ton costs, you know, $2 or $3. So this this is what uh, this how this is what the options are for offset, and you can actually select. You can say, okay, I'd like to plant a tree for my offset, or I'd like to get a family to have a solar lamp because if they don't use kerosene, then they also reduce the carbon footprint. Oh, I'd like families to get you know two or three stoves. So you can go to our website, um, eco2librium.net. Um, so that's eco2. L-I-B-R-I-U-M.net. <laughs> it's a complicated name, I know. <laughs> and yeah, you can contact any of us and we'll, we'll help you out. So if you want to offset directly with us, um, go to myclimate.org in Switzerland and you know, go through their website, find, just do a search for the Kakamega project. You'll go straight to the project and you can actually select to offset off that. They have a carbon calculator on their website. They have everything you need. Or if you want to talk to us directly, we'll be happy to do that. Um, yeah, so th there is options. But also, if you don't want to go through all that, you can just go through your airline. And uh, even if that money doesn't come to us, even if the carbon offset does not result in uh, working for Kamega, it will, it will help some, somebody else somewhere. It will help a woman in Nicaragua or Brazil or Indonesia or you know, one of the other countries with beautiful tropical rainforests. You could also offset directly in the United States or in Canada or in Europe or in Japan. So there's quite a lot of options. Um, you know, I would suggest that people go online, do a search, uh, search for Eco2 Librium, search for My Climate, search for local carbon offsets. They, there's quite a lot of options out there. There's quite a lot of options. Yeah, and, and, and I'll just say that... Um... You know, I, I spend a, a fair amount of time, you know, doing doing some research on on carbon offsets, um, a, actually with a specific goal in mind, right? So, so our organization, uh, our you know media uh, production organization, Wild Lens, you know, we are a, a, a nonprofit. We're focused on media production connected to conservation, um, and so obviously we're very aware of you know the footprint that our organiz organization has and the activities that we do. Um, the footprint that it has on the planet, um, and we're holding a uh, an organizational retreat in a couple of weeks. And so, I mean, I was searching uh, for options and trying to learn more about specific projects associated with carbon offset programs, um, specifically because I want to uh, offset um, the footprint that we're having by holding this event for our organization, right? Um, right. Yeah. 
and and you know and and i did a a fair amount of research and found a bunch of projects but i mean this project your project stood out right um and and so we will be offsetting um the the entire footprint of this retreat um you know through my climate and contributing uh you know that that um uh, you know uh, contributing that towards the 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 kakamega project because it is it's um it's inspiring right i mean what what you what you've told us about like the the benefits you know not just to the forest ecosystem itself but the benefits to the community right and how when you take these steps to help uh a forest ecosystem how that trickles down and how it benefits all these people that live in the community in many different ways right um it's right. truly inspiring um so uh, yeah, I just wanted to let you know that that um, we will absolutely be uh, uh, contributing to this project. We'll be offsetting um, our footprint for our organizational retreat, um, and and in addition to that, I will be sharing all of the the links that you mentioned. Um, those will all be shared on on the show notes page for this episode, so that other folks who are listening um, have access to that information as well. Well, thank you. Thank you very much from everybody in Kakamega. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, um, and, and it, it's, it's, it, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems like a small thing, right? And, and I mean, I think it, like for us, it is a small thing, right? But I mean, it's like to, to hear how much benefit, you know, the, the, the people in these communities of Kakamega get out of that um, is, is truly amazing. Um, so, I mean, I, I thank you for the work that you're doing. You know, you're, you're, um, talking the talk you're actually doing what you what you're saying what the episode is about i think that's a really important thing and that really adds value to to the whole conversation because you guys are going out and offsetting your credits through exactly what we talked about so that really adds value to it as opposed to just speaking about it so i i have to say thank you again it's yeah it was really fantastic to talk to you so thank you Thank you, Matt. It's actually an honor. It's um, you know, it's a privilege to be doing this work. So uh, you don't have to thank me. I'm I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you absolutely are. I mean, the Kakamega is such such a beautiful area. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, you, you're right. It's it's uh, a truly unique spot. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I I also hope that more people you know learn about the Kakamega and um, you know have the opportunity to to visit that area because. It is uh, a truly special place. To learn more about Ecotune and how you can participate in a carbon offset program, you can find links on the show notes page at wildlandsinc.eoc152. Today's episode was brought to you by Matt Podolsky and produced by me, Catherine Dunning. Our theme music is by The Humidors.